0: that we know that you're here now with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And so we ask now for sustaining grace, even in these moments. We pray that you would sustain us. We pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning from your word. Give us grace to receive and to respond appropriately to what we hear this morning. So thank you for the power of your word to change us. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your eternal commitment to us. And thank you for the promises you've given us of your son's return. We look forward to the fulfillment of that promise. We pray that you would stir us this morning in our affection for that promise and the fulfillment of it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sky is falling, so believed young Chicken Little. Thus she desperately tried to convince everyone she could. The sky is falling, she cried repeatedly. And she convinced many on her way to inform the king of the land. There are various endings to the familiar folk tale, but do you know what they all have in common? The sky wasn't literally falling. The folktale seems to have been intended as a kind of fable with a moral lesson warning children of the dangers of provoking panic and fear in others or, on the other side, gullibly believing every outrageous claim someone makes. In the story, Chicken Little's announcement that the sky was falling was her description of what she believed was a sign of the end of the world. Thus, the phrase, "...the sky is falling..." has entered English usage in two ways. The phrase was used in a headline of an opinion piece in the New York Times on March 19, 2020, written by a young doctor working at a hospital in New York City to describe what she was seeing with COVID-19. She was not intending to contribute to panic, she assured readers. Rather, she wanted to mobilize people to respond calmly but appropriately. She and her husband drew a lot of media attention around the beginning of the pandemic as they disclosed that they had drafted wills to ensure that their very young children were taken care of should they die from contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Life has certainly changed since the pandemic, and many people have lost their lives, some very close to us. And yet, For those two doctors, and their children, and for the rest of us, life goes on. The sky has not fallen. The other way the phrase gets used, in line with the moral of the fable, with a bit of a sarcastic tone, is to mock someone who is overreacting. For Chicken Little, a nut had fallen out of a tree and hit her in the head. Not seeing the nut she drew an interesting conclusion. As she looked up, all she saw was the sky, data point number one. Data point number two, something solid hit her in the head. She felt it, and it hurt. From these two points, in the creation of a fantastic syllogism, she concluded that a piece of the sky must have fallen on her head. As she announced her conclusion to everyone who would listen, the other animals Should have asked some questions, looked for more data, sought more evidence before gullibly giving in to fear. Well, there was one character in the story who didn't believe Chicken Little's report. Do you remember how the folktale ends? Foxy Loxy either didn't believe her report or didn't care. Instead, he lured her followers into his lair, telling them that he would take them by a shortcut to the king's palace In some versions of this story, Chicken Little herself escapes, one way or another, but all of her followers are eaten by the cunning fox. He took advantage of their gullibility and their fear. Interestingly, the story was adapted by Disney during World War II, turned into a sort of dark comedy, where the fox had bought into Nazi propaganda and so is responsible for agitating the frenzy of the rest of the animals in order to devour them. The point seemed to be to illustrate how fear-mongering and provoking panic could cause the Allies to fail in the war effort. Why are we beginning this morning with a reminder about Chicken Little? (laughs) For two reasons. First, Jesus issues sharp warnings throughout his kingdom-coming discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 for his followers to resist deception and to not be alarmed by the events that might seem to indicate that the sky is falling. Second, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to announce that the sky will someday fall. And we need to grapple carefully with his words in their biblical and ancient context. Before we look at the details of those famous words in verse 29 of Matthew 24, where he sets up as a precursor to his coming, and he certainly seems to be describing what one writer calls cosmic catastrophes. I'd like to briefly explore some other passages of Scripture. While Chicken Little certainly believed the sky was literally falling, when we read that kind of language in the Bible where the authors intending to communicate that the sky was literally going to fall or that it literally had fallen. In verse 29, Jesus is going to refer to the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. By themselves, those phrases could describe nothing more significant than solar or lunar eclipses. Then he adds that the stars will fall from the sky, and even this might mean nothing more than what we know of as a meteor shower. Finally, he speaks of the powers of the heavens shaken, a phrase that is harder to correlate with a specific astronomical phenomenon. Jesus is clearly borrowing each of these four phrases from different passages of the Old Testament, which describe various cosmic catastrophes. First, consider Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The first thing to notice from these verses is that Isaiah is composing poetry. Most English Bibles have indented lines here, indicating that this is indeed Hebrew poetry. Notice also that verse 9 has the prophet Isaiah speaking about the day of the Lord, on which the Lord will pour out His wrath on sinners. And then verse 11 is Yahweh Himself promising to punish the wicked of the world. In between comes verse 10, which describes these cosmic catastrophes. And Jesus quotes the phrase... The sun will be dark. The word translated land in verse 9 could be translated just as well earth. And I think we should see it that way. So, does Isaiah expect the stars to literally go dark? Is he announcing that the sun will literally rise completely dark? Is he expecting the moon to be blackened out at night when the Lord comes to judge the world? We don't have enough information in Isaiah 13 to answer for certain. Consider next, Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. Note the poetic form again. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares Lord Yahweh. Who is the you in this passage From verse 1 of Ezekiel 32, we find that the Lord has instructed the prophet Ezekiel to sing a lament song about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this, this announcement of judgment here does not have to do with the very end of human history. Instead, it has to do with the judgment of one particular Egyptian king, or at least the nation of Egypt around the year 586 B.C., Now, Ezekiel receives this message just a short time after the prophet learned that Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Thus, the Lord seems to be giving this message to the prophet so he would pass it on to the Jews in exile so that they wouldn't be tempted yet again to turn to Egypt for salvation and for help. The fulfillment of this defeat and destruction of Egypt would be accomplished by the same Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. Now, when Egypt was defeated by Babylon, did the stars literally go dark? There may have been clouds covering the sun. Perhaps there was a lunar eclipse during that time. But all of this could be poetic language utilized to describe the significance of Egypt's downfall. As they had once been literally plagued with darkness, back in Exodus. So God will again bring judgment against Egypt. Third, we return to Isaiah. This time we look at Isaiah 34, 1-4. to Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Here again, Isaiah seems to be describing the final, universal judgment of all nations. And he depicts Yahweh's judgment as a great slaughter of the people of these nations. Then in verse 4, he speaks of the host of heaven, which is most likely a reference to the stars, rotting away and falling. Why and how does God's slaughter of human beings on earth parallel with the sky being rolled up like a scroll? and the stars falling out of the sky. Note the poetic form again. Isaiah the prophet is actually summoning the nations to show up for their day in court, on which they will be sentenced to execution. Jesus doesn't quote this passage directly, but most students of Scripture acknowledge an allusion. He does seem to be borrowing the language of the stars falling from the sky from Isaiah's depiction here of the host of heaven falling Finally, we return to Isaiah 13. Just a couple of verses after the passage we looked at earlier, in the same paragraph, we read Isaiah 13:13. 13, 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. As we saw earlier, this poetic description does seem to look forward to the final day of judgment. So if these passages are in Jesus' mind, In our passage this morning, he's quoting several verses that seem to look ahead to the final judgment and one that focuses on a historical judgment of Egypt. Cosmic catastrophes are used elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. They're described in poetic passages in the prophets to describe Assyria's invasion of Israel, the northern kingdom, Babylon's conquering of Judah, the southern kingdom, Babylon's defeat of Egypt, like we see in Ezekiel, as well as the future final judgment of all the nations. Did these cosmic catastrophes literally take place in each of these historical occasions, fulfillments? Add to this the well-documented reality that every ancient culture speaks this way and writes this way, And we have to consider more carefully how our expectations of the fulfillment of prophecies like this should look. Or, as one writer suggests, we should be open to the idea that, quote, the prophetic language of cosmic catastrophe is about the spiritual importance of what was to happen, not a physical description of what was to happen. Before we jump into our passage in Matthew officially... Consider one more thought about this way of speaking. We, today, actually do still talk like this. An article in the Smithsonian Magazine described 1968 as the year that shattered America. An article posted on the History Channel's website said of the same year, nearly every week produced news of another earth shattering event. Or think more personally, when a loved one dies, you might say something like, my world was turned upside down. What are we doing when we talk like this? We're not speaking of the earth literally being shattered into a million pieces. We're not literally talking about the world being flipped over. We're trying to figuratively convey the significance of a particular event, whether that's significance on a global scale or significance on our personal Lifetime scale. Describing literally what happened step by step in a narration doesn't communicate how it made you feel, how it affected you, how it changed you. Similarly, in the ancient world, where they studied the sky diligently and recognized the stability and the consistency of the movement of those heavenly bodies, to speak of an event that changed everything or to speak of the destruction and judgment brought about by a god, they often spoke of the failure of the sun, moon, and the stars. In all of these passages, this might be all we should take away. Rather than expecting cosmic catastrophes, perhaps we're getting the prophets and the poets seeking to illustrate the significance of certain events. When we analyze Jesus' words in verse 29 and said it In its New Testament context, I'll show you why he almost certainly didn't intend to speak literally. Taking him literally creates a contradiction, or at least a very difficult to resolve problem in New Testament eschatology. But before we get to that, let's step back into Matthew 24 again. Recall that Jesus has just announced the destruction of the temple... And four of his disciples, we learn that from Mark's gospel, four of his disciples have asked him to tell them when that was going to happen. They've also asked him what sign they can expect God to send them to indicate that they should prepare for Jesus' coming and the end of the age. In verses 4 to 14 of Matthew 24, Jesus warned them about the danger of looking for a sign. It primes you to be led astray and distracted. So Jesus listed several big things that they might think are signs, but should not be viewed that way. Then in verses 15 to 22, I believe he began answering their first question by telling them something that they would see. The abomination of desolation, which I suggested was fulfilled in the actions of the Jewish zealots, which provoked the Roman armies to surround Jerusalem, destroy the temple, burn the city, and slaughter multitudes. This event produced great tribulation, which would impact his disciples' lives. But it also seems to have contributed to the birth pains, the waves of suffering and tribulation that would characterize history from that day until he does, in fact, return. But Jesus assures his disciples that God will intervene to reduce the suffering and preserve his elect. Now we move into verses 23 to 26, where Jesus warns His followers about counterfeit comings. Matthew 24, 23 to 26. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Jesus repeats his warning from verse 5. But here, after he draws their attention to the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem, he indicates that the same kind of deceivers will be active during the Jewish war and even beyond. History has certainly proven Jesus to be a true prophet. But followers of Jesus throughout the ages need to be on their guard against both those who would claim to be the Messiah, as though the Messiah had returned in some secret fashion, only notifying certain specially chosen followers, and also against false prophets who would claim to speak the word of the Lord, but who are truly peddling cleverly devised myths, seeking to exploit Christians with their false words, As Peter would later say, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I possess a chart published in a theological journal in 1990 that lists 70 individuals throughout history who have either claimed to be the Messiah or others believed they were the Messiah. It's interesting to note that there were two such men who were active during the Jewish war. One was named Menachem ben Judah, the other was named Simeon bar Menachem was a warrior, and he gained a violent following and proclaimed himself king of the Jews in A.D. 66. His father had been Judas the Galilean, a man who claimed to be the Messiah right around the time Jesus was born. He is mentioned in Acts 5.37. Menachem, his son, attempted to capture the temple, but was quickly killed. This was before John of Giscala, who, as I mentioned last week, I believe factors into the abomination of desolation Jesus and Daniel spoke of, actually did capture the temple. Shortly after John did turn the temple into a fortress, Simeon Bar-Giora was followed by a group of Edomians, and they attempted, ultimately unsuccessfully, to remove John from the temple. This was the kind of infighting that Josephus referred to as civil war among the Jews in Jerusalem that certainly contributed to their being slaughtered by the Romans. Josephus also testifies to the prevalence of false prophets during the Jewish war of A.D. 66-70. to And he even records the testimony of several apparent signs and wonders being performed before the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Roman armies. Many Jews looked to these signs as indicators from God that he was going to spare Jerusalem and the temple. And as Rome tightened the noose around the temple, people were desperate for salvation, desperate for hope. They were led astray. As the true prophet Jesus had clearly indicated, the city and its inhabitants were doomed. Since that year, AD 70... There have been many more false messiahs, and there have been many, many more false prophets. And so his warning remains relevant for today. Jesus makes it clear that their desire is to deceive those whom God has chosen to save, the elect. But they will ultimately fail. It can be disheartening today to see the number of people who seem to be listening to self-proclaimed prophets on the Internet, many of whom are professing Christians. We fear for loved ones who are enamored with the latest prophecies announced on YouTube for the coming year. And it can be alarming to hear how prophetic ministry is elevated in some churches. Nevertheless, while genuine believers might be convinced to believe falsehoods for a time, Jesus assures us here that it is not truly possible for Jesus' elect people to be deceived so as to abandon Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus' point in these verses is summarized in four simple statements by Professor Charles Quarles. If someone has to tell you about it, Christ has not returned. If someone attempts to use miracles to convince you, Christ has not returned. If his location is distant or secret, Christ has not returned. If His glory is not displayed for all the world to see, Christ has not returned. And that last statement actually refers to the next verses. Let's look at verses 27 and 28, where Jesus speaks of His clear coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Jesus provides two interesting illustrations to highlight the obvious nature of his coming. Unlike false messiahs, when Jesus, the true messiah, returns, everyone will know. No one will have to be told to go to a particular place to find him or to meet with him. As lightning brightens the entire horizon when it strikes, so his coming will be universally bright and clear. Or... In a gruesome image, everyone knows that there must be something dead on the ground when a flock of vultures is seen in the sky, circling a particular area. Likewise, when Jesus returns, everyone will know. While there will continue to be false messiahs and false prophets seeking to distract and deceive God's chosen people, even regarding whether or not Jesus has returned, he has given us these illustrations to protect us from being led astray. But now, in the following verses, he elaborates further on his coming, and he pitches it as a cosmic coming. Look at verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. If we're tracking with Jesus' references to those days throughout this passage, the tribulation of those days certainly seems to refer to the time period that includes the disciples' lifetime leading up to and including the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then following from that year all the way through church history. That's to speak of it from our vantage point, recognizing that the coming of the Son of Man has not yet occurred as of January 29th, 2023. The birth pains have continued, but the baby has not yet been born. Here, Jesus' point seems to be to indicate that it is his coming that will put a decisive end to the tribulation. But Jesus speaks of the cosmic catastrophes that we looked at earlier as preceding or accompanying his coming. Jesus immediately simply indicates that his followers should expect no gap between the period of tribulation and his coming nothing else other than Jesus' personal return will end the tribulation, bringing judgment on unbelievers and purifying suffering to believers. As we looked earlier at the Old Testament background to these cosmic catastrophes, I suggested that, the under, that understanding Jesus to be speaking of the sun literally being darkened, the moon literally not giving its light, and the stars literally falling from the sky creates a potential contradiction ...with other New Testament passages regarding the sequence of end times events. The whole sequence of end times events is highly debated. So, maybe there's no contradiction at all. You be the judge for yourself. One way to solve the problem could be... ...to see these events that Jesus is describing here as relatively ordinary. Eclipses and meteor showers. But I don't know of anyone who sees it that way. Most folks who want to take Jesus literally here believe he is describing the end of the space-time universe. He's describing the literal end of this world. What these students of Scripture seem to fail to notice is that this cannot be made to fit with the sequence of events lined out in the book of Revelation. If, as Jesus says here, these cosmic catastrophes occur immediately after the tribulation of those days, but before, or even as, at the same time as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This would contradict the depiction of Jesus' coming as being before the millennium of Revelation 20. I assume, and it is an assumption, during the millennium the sun will still be shining during the day, the moon will still be bright at night, and the stars will still take their course through the sky. The Bible does seem to anticipate the destruction of the material universe. Perhaps the clearest passage communicating that idea is Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This must line up with Revelation 20.11 which is describing what happens after the millennium. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The exposure of the works done on earth mentioned in Peter seems to be elaborated in Revelation 20 as the final judgment in front of this great white throne which happens after the material universe goes away which happens after the millennium. So, With those chronological indicators in place from Peter and Revelation, I'm compelled to take Jesus' words about cosmic catastrophes figuratively, just as they were probably intended in every passage of the Old Testament. British scholar Tom Wright summarizes how Jewish writers, after the Old Testament period of history, had developed their expectations about the future and the end times. He writes, Within the mainline Jewish writings of this period, covering a wide range of styles, genres, political persuasions, and theological perspectives, there is virtually no evidence that Jews were expecting the end of the space-time universe. There is abundant evidence that they, like Jeremiah and others before them, knew a good metaphor when they saw one and used cosmic imagery to bring out the full theological significance of cataclysmic socio-political events. The end of a nation, the stars fall from the heavens. The conquering of a country, the sun goes black in the sky. If that's so, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that his return is going to turn the world upside down. His return is going to end the normal pattern of tribulation and suffering for God's people. His return is going to bring swift destruction to those who have promoted persecution and tribulation in this world. His return is going to set the stage for the final judgment. Thus, the mention of cosmic catastrophes here is meant to vividly depict the universal significance of the coming of the Son of Man that he's about to describe. Maybe that's all. Jesus adds in verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. There's all kinds of debate, surprise, surprise, about what Jesus means here. But what seems clear and is generally agreed upon is that He is connecting with the second question the disciples asked. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They were seeking a single sign that would indicate Jesus' coming, which would establish the end of the age. Jesus warned them about seeking for a sign, and here he gives them a sign. This seems similar to how he answered the Jewish leaders when they asked him for a sign back in Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus first says that there would be no sign, but then he offers the sign of Jonah. As we saw when we looked at that passage before, the sign is not the same kind of thing that the Jewish leaders were asking for. They wanted some miraculous demonstration of power that would prove Jesus' authority and identity. Instead, he simply tells them to go read the book of Jonah again and to see there a depiction of Jesus dying and rising from the dead on the third day. Jonah himself was the sign. So, likewise, in this passage, the sign of the Son of Man seems to be Jesus himself coming on the clouds of heaven. Thus, in his directly addressing the disciples' request for a sign, don't miss the hint of a rebuke here. They want a sign of His coming, and He simply says, Your sign is My coming. Look to that and not anything else. As in verses 4 to 14, Jesus doesn't want them distracted by other things. He wants them to simply look for Him, period. But then Jesus tells what will happen as a result of His appearing in the sky. He says there in the middle of verse 30, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. He's again referencing the Old Testament. Here he's borrowing from Zechariah 12, verses 10 to 14. Rather than unpacking that connection this morning, I think it would be more helpful and take less time to see how what Jesus says lines up with John's usage of the same verses and the same phraseology in Revelation 1:7. Behold... He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Given the unfolding of the visions of Revelation, when Jesus arrives in chapter 19, riding the white horse, there is no response of repentant mourning. In fact, throughout the book, in the face of the Lamb's judgments, those who dwell on the earth consistently refuse to repent, except those whose names have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. In other words, Revelation depicts the elect as responding to the proclamation of the gospel, while everyone else happily gives their allegiance to the beast. When Jesus shows up to bring a final end to the beast's tyranny it will be too late to respond with repentance. Instead, there will be the hopeless mourning expressed by all people in the vision John records in Revelation 6. After John sees the sixth seal being opened, he describes cosmic catastrophes that echo Jesus' words and other Old Testament passages. And then John records what he hears all people saying in verses 15 to 17, Back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus goes on to say that all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Son of Man of the vision recorded in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the coming of a human from earth to heaven to receive universal kingship and everlasting dominion over the whole world. We might say that Daniel sees one like a son of man, this human figure, receive all authority on heaven and earth. Thus Daniel sees Jesus' ascension in a prophetic vision. Here, however, Jesus indicates that the son of man who came to heaven from earth will receive his universal authority, and then will come back to earth from heaven in the future. This is how the angels could say to the disciples in Acts one eleven, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is, they saw him go up in the clouds, and therefore he will come again with the clouds and great glory. Jesus had already told them of this, but in Acts 1, prior to the day of Pentecost and the Spirit's coming, they still had not connected the dots. Finally, in Matthew twenty-four thirty-one, I believe Jesus is describing what we often call the rapture. Look at, verses, look at verse 31 again. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That the Son of Man can claim the angels as His own testifies to His divinity. Jesus commands the angels, and they do His bidding. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we heard about Jesus sending out His angels to do some gathering, but it wasn't His elect being gathered. In Matthew 13, 40-42, as Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the weeds, He said, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the age, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds, the angels are going to have work to do. They will gather those whom God has chosen to save. Jesus is elect from all over the world. Jesus doesn't specify where they are gathered or what happens next. From the parable, we learn that He would send the angels to gather all unbelievers, and then they would toss those unbelievers into hell, which is their eternal destination. Between these two gatherings... The book of Revelation will show that there is a thousand-year separation. In Matthew 24, 31, this gathering is said to be from one end of heaven to the other. An interesting way of saying, from everywhere. However, saying it just like this, Jesus is surely suggesting that this is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, worded similarly in Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. As the Lord promised through Moses that the people of Israel would rebel and be sent into exile. He also promised that he would restore and regather them out of exile. The fulfillment of this promise is dependent on on and prefaced by the circumcision of the heart promised in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which is later connected to the establishment of the new covenant. Thus, the regathering of Israel... prophesied so frequently in the Old Testament, began to be fulfilled as Jews believed in Jesus in the first century. But the full and final restoration and regathering of God's people, Jew and Gentile together, would not come until the resurrection of the dead at the Messiah's final coming. Notice also the trumpet blast that prompts the angels to go out on their gathering mission. Paul refers to this same trumpet blast in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Jesus doesn't explicitly mention the resurrection in Matthew 24. Unless we are to infer it as included in the angels' gathering work, which I think is likely. Thus, Jesus announces this last trumpet, which will signal the angels to gather all of God's people, dead and alive, together to experience their glorious transformation. The rapture of living saints and the resurrection of dead saints seems to happen in conjunction with Jesus' public, loud, universal, final, cosmic coming to bring a final end to all tribulation. This description fits quite well with the primary passage we look to to learn about the rapture, First Thessalonians four thirteen 13-18. In that passage, what Jesus describes as the elect being gathered by angels, Paul speaks of as the dead in Christ rising first and those who are living at that moment being caught up together in the clouds. It is fitting for us to close with a look at that passage this morning. The Thessalonian Christians seem to have been worried about what their dead Christian loved ones would experience when Jesus did return? Would they miss out on an amazing event? Paul wants to encourage them and teach them what to expect so that their grief over their lost loved ones would not overwhelm them. First, in verse 14, Paul assures them that when Jesus returns, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Thus, he promises their resurrection at that time. Then in verse 15, he indicates that their resurrection will happen even before Jesus' return impacts those who are alive. He writes, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And Paul is probably thinking of Jesus' teaching now recorded in Matthew 24. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul gets more specific about the nature and sequence of that cluster of events, drawing more details from Jesus's teaching. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Paul doesn't mention the angels' involvement in this event. Instead, he focuses sharply on Jesus' actions, especially, and then the aftermath. The verb he uses to describe the action, translated as "caught up," can be a very violent term often used outside the Bible to describe seizing an enemy's weapons in warfare, to jerk a spear away from an, enemy's, uh, an enemy in one-on-one combat, or to drag an injured person to safety. It can refer to the crime that we call aggravated robbery. Elsewhere in Scripture, it is used in some of these same ways. Here, Paul seems to be depicting a sudden relocation ...of living believers. One moment we will be on earth... ...the next instant we will be in the clouds. This fits with Paul's other description of this event... ...that we just looked at in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two, ...which focuses on the transformation of living believers... ...that we'll experience in the twinkling of an eye... ...or as quick as it takes you to blink. It's somewhat curious that we're stuck... ...with the English word rapture to refer to this teaching... You won't find the word rapture in any English Bible translation, at least not referring to this teaching. The English word developed from the Latin, and its earliest usage had nothing to do with Christian theology, but instead referred to getting carried away in an ecstatic trance, like in pagan religion. Thus, the normal non-Christian usage of the term rapture in English continues to be in reference to emotional ecstasy, getting carried away in your feelings. The other English word developed from the same Latin root is the word rape, recognizing the term's violent meaning. Nevertheless, the word fits, though its typical usage in English has to do with figuratively or emotionally getting carried away in the Christian doctrine The Word describes Christians literally getting carried away. In 1 Thessalonians 4, rather than focus on the transformation that will take place, Paul focuses on the movement from earth to the clouds. So, as Christ comes in the clouds, he will issue the cry of command, which probably alludes to what Jesus said he will do in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It is only in Revelation 20 that we learn that 1,000 years will separate the resurrection of life from the resurrection of judgment. But in both cases, it will be Jesus' voice, Jesus' word, Jesus' command that will raise the dead. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, Jesus will appear in the clouds with the resurrected saints, most likely all those who have trusted in the Messiah before his first coming and since his death and resurrection, but have had to experience death. Then those who are alive will be snatched up in an instant, moved from earth, to join Jesus and the resurrected saints in the clouds. And Jesus says that the angels will be involved in this transportation, gathering his elect from all over the world. And what is the point of this movement? Why are we going to be snatched away, to be gathered together with the resurrected saints in the clouds? Paul says it is to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word is a term pregnant with meaning. We will see this same word used in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. In Matthew 25, 6 we read, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The five wise virgins had oil for their lamps so they could go out of the city to meet the bridegroom and welcome him. The herald announces the bridegroom's arrival. The virgins come out to meet him. And then in verse 10, we see the five wise virgins going back into the city to join the bridegroom for the marriage feast. They went out to meet him, only then to escort him back into the city in order to stay with him and feast with him. It is commonly observed that this particular term often describes similar situations in which a king or another important person would come to visit a city and the people of the city would go out to meet him outside the city in order to festively escort him all the way into the city. Jesus actually experienced this when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. There was a crowd in Jerusalem that came out of the city to meet him And then they escorted him right back into the city. This seems to be why Paul chooses this very specific term in 1 Thessalonians 4. Those who are alive become the welcoming party for Jesus' return to earth. Rather than describing a secret rapture whereby Jesus doesn't come all the way down. And the raptured saints stay with Jesus in heaven for seven years while God pours out wrathful tribulation on the unbelievers of the earth. The cry of command, the trumpet blast, and perhaps the most important detail, the fact that Paul says the Lord himself will descend from heaven, implying that he's coming all the way down from heaven to earth. All of these things suggest that Paul has in view the resurrection of dead saints, the rapture of living believers, all in connection with his universally visible second coming to personally execute the wicked and to initiate the millennium. Paul, in this passage, doesn't tell us what happens next. Instead, he simply says at the end of verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Which is to say... Wherever the Lord goes, we go. So if other passages of Scripture indicate that He's coming to the earth, then we will go with Him and we will stay with Him forever. This is our great hope. In 2 Timothy 4.8, we are encouraged to love Jesus' appearing, to love His second coming. Do you love it? Or are you so distracted by figuring out everything that might happen beforehand? Or are you so worried about the tribulation and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast that when you think about Jesus' second coming, you don't really think about Jesus and the transformation that's promised? Christian, love Jesus' appearing, love the promise of his coming. Let nothing divert your affections. Paul promises to all who have loved his appearing that the Lord will award them with the crown of righteousness. Don't you want that? Whatever it is. Studying eschatology should and can grow your affection for Jesus and specifically love for his coming. That has been the effect in my life. When I think about Jesus' return and everything I see in the Scriptures surrounding that event and connected with that event and flowing out of that event, everything else fades into the background. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And I see His glory and His grace so clearly when I contemplate His coming. I want that for you too. I'd like to invite the musicians up. I know we're a little over time, but I'd like to sing that famous hymn if we can. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Might have to grab a hymn.